Courageous Parents Network has the deep conviction that parents and providers of seriously ill children have the same goal, to give children the best possible chances to live their best possible lives. In all that we do, CPN strives to help these parents and providers mutually understand each other, communicate more effectively, and make decisions together. In so doing, CPN strives to improve the course of care, both given and received. The new book, Shared Struggles, shares this conviction and strives to do the same. It is a collection of stories from parents and pediatricians caring for children with serious illness. It is a gem. In this podcast, CPN's Blythe Lord speaks with the book's editors and commentators, Ann Schruten and Dr. Barry Markovitz, about the book, the stories, and the hard-earned wisdom within. Thank you, Ann and Barry, so much for joining me in conversation today about your book, Shared Struggles. Stories from Parents and Pediatricians Caring for Children with Serious Illness. In a moment, I will invite you to introduce yourselves, but I want to just start first right in with my effusive and ebullient appreciation for this book. At its core, this book reflects what I have come to really understand are the values and sort of MO of Courageous Parents Network. It captures the essence of that deep conviction that drives everything we do here at Courageous Parents Network, which is that parents and providers have the same goal to give these children, whether there are the children that we are parenting or the children that we are caring for as doctors and nurses and social workers and child life specialists, the very best chance possible to live their very best life possible. As Dr. Chris Adrian, your colleague, Barry, at CHLA, writes so beautifully in his introduction, this collection illustrates in real time the process of reconciliation between the lived experience of each party, a reconciliation that is the fundamental act of pediatric medicine. This embodies it, the two perspectives. And as far as I know, there's nothing like it. So thank you for all the work that went into putting it together, which we'll talk about. And now, if you could each introduce yourselves, and maybe you go first, and then Barry. I'm Ann Schroten. I wear several different hats, but the most important hat is mom to my four children. I have two adult daughters, Hillary and Mary, and my youngest son, Eric, is a sophomore in college. And my third child, Jack, was born almost 23 years ago with a rare congenital muscular dystrophy that affected his muscles, eyes, and brain. That's how Barry and I met. And Jack died at the age of 15 from complications of his disease in 2014. And he is the heart and soul and my inspiration behind this book. I'm uh, Barry Markovich. I'm a pediatrician, a pediatric anesthesiologist, and a pediatric intensivist, ICU doctor. Ann and I met when I was on the faculty at Washington University in St. Louis Children's Hospital. And now I'm at University of Southern California, Keck School of Medicine, and Children's Hospital Los Angeles. How did this book come about? It says in the introduction that it was Barry's idea. <laughs> so, Barry, why this book? I think we will forever differ in our opinion of whose idea it was. But I think the connection that Ann and I had and that Ann showed me 
was uh, too important a story to keep to ourselves. The connection and the lessons that I learned in caring for Jack were universal messages, at least to this kind of population of children and, and providers. So I, I didn't want to keep it a secret. But again, I will insist on a stack of Bibles that it was Anne's idea. <laughs> and what do you say to that? I still say it was Barry's idea, but where we went with it was we worked together and, and came up with a, what we were going to create together. What did you feel, Anne, was the opportunity? Did you see it as a need? Initially, I saw it as an opportunity. Jack had just died, and it's like, what was I going to do with my time? And and it was an opportunity to, you know, add to the conversation that Barry and I had had over the last 15 years of shared perspective, the opportunity to bring other people into the conversation. And then as we worked on it and the final product, I, I would definitely say it's a book that needs to be out there. So it started out very personal for me because Jack had just died, but it grew into something that was is very much for everybody. Barry, you're nodding. How would you describe the need for a book like this, these stories, these shared perspectives? From a provider standpoint, it takes too long for these messages to get into the brains and the hearts of pediatricians taking care of these children. So to have a primer, if you will, you know, this is not taught in medical school. It's not really even taught in residency and training. It's something that comes over time. And, you know, if we could kickstart that learning curve and kind of jolt people awake into thinking, mm-hmm. you know, there's another way to think about this, about these children and these parents, and that I think it's, you know, I thought it was an important message. Well, that is certainly the way I read it. I underlined as I was going through, yes, yes, yes. And especially, I will say, Barry, I especially underlined that the passages where you said, if only clinicians could be learning this earlier. Certainly a lot of this is experience, like you learn by doing and by observing other doing, but the infusion through story is another catalyst for expediting this sort of learning. This can't be taught in a lecture. It has to be experienced or read. Narrative-based medicine is a powerful tool for teaching. And so for people to read these stories, it's a different level of intuitive experience that you don't necessarily have to be in the moment to, to learn from it. To read someone else's story can be very powerful. So who's the target for this book? Well, being a pediatric ICU doctor, and this is where a lot of these children are cared for, I'd like to think that my colleagues in pediatric critical care read it and learn from it. But as I mentioned, I think in the book several times, there's a growing body of pediatricians who care for these children that are not ICU doctors, usually trained in hospital medicine or general pediatrics, and they find this a calling to be able to help coordinate the care of these complex children. So I wouldn't focus on a particular subspecialty because the subspecialties that are involved with these children, sometimes they become the sort of coordinating physicians or nurse practitioners to help manage these children. So that would be a target audience as well. What about med students? Do you think there's room for this in med school? You know, I'd like to think that there would be. We're trying to get the word out there about this to medical students. But to be honest, I think they're so focused on understanding the basics of medicine and physiology that, you know, there's a lot more quote unquote, humanism being taught in medical school these days. And that's wonderful. So I don't know, that remains to be seen. At the very least, this should be 
part of pediatric training because yeah. this is about children and yeah. families. That makes sense. And I thinking like if you are thinking of going into pediatrics, this might be something you just put on your bedside table because it really does work in that capacity. These are very inspiring, motivating, sometimes certainly upsetting, but ultimately inspiring stories that can be read in little bits and pieces and remind you of why you are thinking about pediatrics and what can be transformative in that encounter or that series of encounters in the room, the figurative room and the literal room. And tell me, please, what was the process for how you collected these stories, who you approached for writing the parent perspective and who you approached for the pediatrician perspective? From the parent perspective, I, you know, back when, when Jack was born, they didn't have social media and we parents connected through listservs and message boards. So I have, you know, back in 2000, I joined this message board called tracheostomy.com. And from there, I have a very large network of parents that I connected with and have stayed friends with for, they're my very best friends, many of them for the last 20 years. So I started with that network of parents. And then for those parents, then would connect me to other parents as well as physicians. So we have stories from parents all across the country. And then with physicians, started with Jack's doctors, the doctors that were recommended by some other parents. Barry obviously has his connections and his network that he reached out to. And then interestingly, you know, I did a lot of reading and I'd find articles about complex kids that were very interesting to me. And I'd see who the main writer was and I would reach out to him. And I got at least three physicians that way that just jumped right on board. The stories are divided across four themes. And can you talk a little, please, about how you came up with those themes? Well, I think just they were the common themes as we gathered the stories. I mean, this book evolved very much over time as to what it ultimately looked like. And I think as we gathered our stories and read them, those were just what jumped out at us was those those were the primary ones. I mean, there's stories, obviously, in some of these chapters that could fit in multiple sections. So just to be clear for people listening, the themes are compassion, trust, communication, and hope, which immediately, of course, anyone who swims in this sea will recognize as the fundamentals of the patient, parent, and provider interaction. Hope, communication, trust, and compassion. You lead with compassion and you end with hope. And I really, as a reader, felt like that just made tremendous sense because compassion is what opens the door. You have to have a compassionate heart to enter into that room and connect both ways, but particularly the compassionate, empathetic provider. And then ending with hope because we are ever moving into an uncertain future, mostly. That's true for all of us in our life, but that's particularly true when we're caring for children living with medical complexity. So to end on that note, felt really right. I really like the way you organized it. Thank you. I can't say that I even thought about it that way, but I'm glad it, it resonated with you. It's lovely that you recognize it. That flow makes sense. And in some ways, the flow of the book and the stories, themes emerged, as Anne said, and you could make an argument that it doesn't matter how they're, or how they're arranged. The themes do come out, but I, I really appreciate your recognizing that pattern. 
Barry, this question is for you. In their writing, the pediatricians, to be clear, all of the provider authors are doctors. It seems that there is this thing called the transformative encounter. One of the clinicians actually names the transformative encounter, but really they're all writing about a transformative encounter. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Sounds like Anne and Jack was a transformative encounter, but can you talk about that? I'm not sure I have the insight into how each of these physicians came upon this recognition, but it is sometimes a little bit like getting hit in the head with a two by four, like, wow, I did not see that. I never felt that before. Something's changed in my perspective. It's like putting on a new pair of glasses and saying, wow, I can see something that I couldn't see before. Sometimes I think it comes to people abruptly and other times it takes reflection and multiple encounters before it sinks in. Certainly someone as clueless as me takes, it, it probably <laughs> took time and multiple encounters, but, but I, I think it is a meaningful thing. The learning process of medicine is that way. You know, you do a procedure, you're not an expert in that procedure all of a sudden. You have to do it multiple times. And I think that probably applies to this experience and quote unquote transformation as well. And for you, representing the parent perspective, what emerges when I was reading all the parent stories was this theme of gratitude. It just seemed like there was largely gratitude that parents were talking about. And then sometimes the inverse of that, where an observation about what could have been better. We all want to be heard. I think about when Jack was finally discharged from the PICU from the PICU's perspective, they, they kind of grew to love him, but they, they sought you know, an, an available bed. When I went home, I went home with a kid who had a trach, a ventilator, a G-tube. And so I don't know that there was any, they just, they had no idea what going home with all of this was like. And I think we want our children's doctors to understand, first of all, how really difficult it is. It might seem routine to them in a hospital, but coming home with it all. And then just understanding the, the complexity of coordinating care. And you want them to appreciate and understand we all want to be understood. And, and we just kind of form a, a lot of us, a, a bond with our kids' doctors because we see them all the time. And we want them to know there's more to us than just what our life's like. And we're not just a patient or a parent. What we had was a lot of doctors in this book that really took the time to listen and be moved that means a lot to us because there's a lot that don't listen. No one shows up intending to not do a good job, but there are a lot of variables at play. Each of these stories, whether it's a parent story or a provider story, is followed by a commentary written by Anne from the parent perspective and Barry by the provider perspective. And Barry, in quite a few of your observations as a provider, when you're responding to some things that do go well or didn't go well, you do point to some of the limitations of the environment, of the setting, the conditions, the electronic medical record, all these things that clinicians are having to do concurrent with connecting, being in the room, listening, building trust. I found it very helpful that you were naming these obstacles and then it's sort of here they are and what else, you know, it, they're not an excuse. They're a bit of an explanation and still we have to do, we can do better. Particularly quite a few stories are set in the intensive care units, whether it's the NICU or the PICU. Barry, can you talk a little bit about how that setting is 
singular and not always conducive to what parents are looking for? Yes, absolutely. Certainly for the pediatric intensivist, the ICU doctor may have five, 10, 15 other patients, some of whom are acutely ill that need their presence at the bedside for hours at a time just to stabilize them and literally keep them alive. And then to have a child who's medically stable, but has many complex conditions that need attention and need coordination. It's a mind shift that the physician has to undergo to say, okay, take a deep breath, sit down, talk to this family, examine this child, talk to the child. And, you know, it's really a paradigm shift in the moment. And at the same time, you may be getting called back to the other child's room who's now unstable again. So it's extremely distracting. It's like driving a car down a busy freeway and trying to, you know, change your baby's diaper. You know, it's just, it, it can be, it can be really hard to, to juggle. And for a physician to shift like that, that abruptly going 60 miles an hour to going five miles an hour, both are equally important, certainly to the children and the families, but it can be a struggle. We've talked about how this book is primarily for clinicians, but I think the parent in me and the CPN executive director in me also sees it as a primer for parents to better understand what it's like for their children's providers. Maybe it's okay for me to say, because I'm not currently caring for a child who's living with medical complexity. And one could say, well, I don't have any room to worry about what it's like for you, my child's doctor. And yet, We are human beings who are showing up in the same room with the same goal. And if we as parents can have a deeper understanding of what's happening behind the scenes and what it's like for my child's doctor, who is also a human being, couldn't that also make it better? And was that part of what you were thinking as you read these stories? Absolutely. I think that's what Barry did so well over the years. I mean, he was a voice of reason for me, but he was also honest. And I think if we want honesty and compassion, and we have to also give the same to the doctors. We've all spent enough time in an ICU and in a hospital. We see what doctors do, and we see the families, and we see their challenges. And, and I think if we take a step back, and are you know, I think it's important to take a step back and realize that. They're not there just for us. We can stand to have a little grace and compassion and patience as well. And that's what this book is just sort of a a reminder as well. I think one of the ingredients for this that you write about and you explicitly name is the importance of providers having humility, but one can't really teach humility and one probably certainly doesn't teach humility in med school. Can you just elaborate on that, please? Just the importance of the opportunity and importance of acknowledging the limitations of what doctors can know. It's a subliminal message that doctors go through training and, you know, four years of medical school, three to seven years of residency and additional training and they're supposed to have the answers. And parents come to the, the pediatricians anyway and say, I want answers and I want solutions. And we don't always know, especially these children where there's multiple systems that are interacting that this may be the first time you've ever seen a child with this, this, this uh, configuration of problems. There's no rule book. There's no textbook that says do A, B, and C. And so to acknowledge that we don't have all the answers, that we are going to do everything we can to find the answers. And if we we can't, we're going to sit and hold hands and acknowledge our 
limitations together, that's really hard, especially for junior doctors. They're insecure to start with. And, you know, how do they portray a sense of confidence and humility at the same time? It's really hard for them. So I joke that the, the more I learn, the, the, the more I learn, I don't know. It's an important lesson because transparency and honesty go for miles when it comes to situations that are this complex and where the answers are uncertain. Another related theme that I saw coming up again and again was clinicians who were surprised by how the child responded and parents wanting their child's doctor to leave open the door to be surprised. Like, can we please just be ever open to this could go better than you think it might, but surprise and medicine probably don't go hand in hand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it it relates to the prognosis issue and that our ability to prognosticate and predict the future for any given patient is rather limited because each of these situations can be relatively rare. So it would be presumptuous of us to say, yeah, I've seen a hundred children like this and all of them had this outcome. That's just not accurate. And being fair and transparent about that lack of accuracy is really important. Leaving the door open for something developing in a positive light that we didn't expect. I often say, I hope I'm wrong, but here's my expectation. And how can we get through this together? Mm-hmm. Of course, related to that is this whole idea of not presupposing and not judging. And a lot of the stories speak to parents impressing upon their child's medical team and their child's doctor that this is who our child is and this is what matters to us and this is what we see when we look at our child and could you please see what I see or you're not seeing what I see, you know, how dare you? Can you elaborate on that, please? Just the importance of parents feeling that their providers see their children the way they see their children. When you only see our kids in the hospital, you see a sick kid and outside of the hospital, there's people that see all the children with all this technology and they think they're sick, but they're not. They're stable when they're on all this technology. And I think it's just recognizing that when it comes to having hope and expectations for our children, I think that at least my experience is, is that it also changes over time. In the beginning, when we, none of us really know what the prognosis is, and in Jack's case, didn't even have a diagnosis initially, you're just hoping that it's for the best. It's all temporary. It's all going to go away. And then over time, you know, you, you hope that, you know, he gets off the ventilator and then you hope he walks you come to accept reality, you know, you're realistic, but you're always going to have hope and hope can be nothing more than I hope he wakes up tomorrow and has a good day, isn't sick or gets to go to school or it's just, there's always something that is positive from us in our child's life that doesn't have to be this overreaching, my, you know, child's going to do all these things that we know they're not, but that doesn't mean there's not a reason to have hope for for some good in their life and that they do have good in their life and they can have good in their life and be happy and enjoy life even, you know, in spite of their challenges. Yeah. I mean, Barry, you and quite a few of your provider responses talk about what can happen or how important it is for the doctor to see the child through the parent's eyes 
And then you talk about doctors being curious about what is this child's life like at home? You say, we need a strong line of sight on what home really means and is like for these kids and their families. That strikes me as a doable action, right? It's not a procedure, but like, tell me about your child at home. What are they like and who are they like at home? We can do that. Yeah, absolutely. It's really helpful when parents come and now with the technology being, you know, literally in everybody's pocket, show me a video of your child having a good day at home. Mm -hmm. The other analogy I'd propose is that it's like um, a, a somebody speaking a different language. Just because they're speaking a different language doesn't mean they're not making sense. Mm -hmm. And so parents can speak to their children and, and, and the children speak to their parents in a language that we don't understand. And so it doesn't, for us to presume that there's no communication because we can't understand the language is presumptuous of us. So if you think of it in that light, you walk up to somebody and they're speaking a different language, you don't think, well, they can't speak, you know? So it's, it's, it's really an eye-opening experience if you think of it that way. Such a helpful and accessible analogy. And I am reminded of the story in here where the provider talks about how this one particular patient was in the hospital. You know, they had been seen often as far as everybody on the team could tell, there was zero communication. And yet the mom said, she's hungry. And they're like, how on earth are you seeing this? This is ridiculous. And they thought the mother was, they sort of typed her as a particular type of parent. But then when this clinician visited this young woman at home and saw her in her home and saw the mother caring for her in her home and saw that this young woman was communicating in these ways that were harder to see when she felt sick as hell in the hospital, but was more obvious at home. That one story changed everything and illustrates it completely. I said just a minute ago, like, that's a doable action. Sit down and tell me about your child and show me pictures of your child at home. But it's also like, this is hard. Is it just a matter of you may not see it, but you should just trust it? Is it as simple as, you know, in that moment as a clinician, I would think you're taught evidence-based medicine and I'm not seeing any evidence of this. Am I just supposed to trust the parent? Is it as simple as that? In some ways, yes. Again, they have a lens and a view of their child that I could never, even if I asked the questions, I still can't appreciate it emotionally, intuitively the way they do. So for us to impose our values and our judgments on a different family in a different situation, it's wrong. And so that's a message we try to teach on a regular basis. You know, don't ever say, if this were my child. And even when you ask that question, if this were your child, what would you do? I try very hard to avoid answering that because I can't for a moment pretend to put myself in that situation. As a quick spinoff, when I was in pediatric training before I had my own children, Parents would ask me, do you have children? And I'd say, no. And they said, you don't understand. You can't possibly understand. And I, I was like, okay, whatever. And then when I did have children, I knew exactly what they meant. So, but, but that's, that's just a small insight. Being a parent yourself doesn't give you the insight to the being a parent of one of yeah. these complex children. So this brings me to one of the things that comes up a few times, that ever thorny question what would you do if this were your child, where a parent turns to their child's doctor in a critical moment where a decision needs to be made, a weighty decision, and asks, what would you do if this were your child? And Anne, before Barry responds, 
because he has a strong opinion about this. I love what you write in one of your parent responses. It is an understandable question because parents want someone to carry the burden of the decision with them. Can you just elaborate on that? Well, I'm, these are obviously tough decisions. I mean, it's not like you're deciding what school your child's going to or you know what sport they're going to play. These are life and death decisions. And you know, over time, we gain some experience. We, we gain some intuition. But when you're making these tough decisions, you always want, I think it's helpful to have somebody who has experience to at least share their experience because it is, I mean, it's, you hope it goes right, but if it doesn't, you at least want to know you were taking the advice of somebody who had some experience. I mean, these are life and death decisions a lot of times. There's a fear of regret that courses through all of this. And by leaning on the expertise of an expert, it is a natural thing to try to mitigate the chance of that regret later. Barry, I love how you say while understandable, this is not a fair question to ask. And then you propose an alternative way of answering it. When it comes really to the life or death decisions, to relieve the parents of that weight, given the family's values and their experiences and understanding, trying to get see the child through their eyes and what their expectations are and their hopes, for us to make a medical recommendation to say, it's my medical recommendation that we do X, Y, or Z, and you just have to agree with it. Maybe I'm kidding myself, but I think that helps a little bit relieve the burden to say, it's a medical recommendation that we give your child antibiotics for an ear infection. That's obviously so far less weighty, but you know, you just have to agree with it and then give the antibiotic versus being able to help the family with that, the weightiness of that, by saying this is a defined medical recommendation. I believe your child should have this operation. I believe your child should have this procedure. I believe your child is at the end of their life and that doing this further intervention isn't in his or her best interest or you as a family based on what I know about you. I don't know if that helps. Maybe I'm kidding myself, but I think it's that's how I was taught over time to tr try to help navigate those very stormy waters. But I have a tremendous amount of respect for the people that I'm asking at this point, you know, in Jack's life, these questions. So I give a tremendous amount of weight to what they share. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it does take away the burden from me. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate it. And I think we need it. We do need it. Right. Yeah. I'll tell you, there was one chapter in here that I was just underlining like crazy. And it's one of the stories, I won't remember the particulars of the child or parent, but it's a mom talking about her child lives with medical complexity and has been in the ICU on and off frequently for their life. The theme of this chapter is really about control and the perception providers have of the controlling parent as being a difficult parent or a high maintenance parent. You explain what's going on for that parent so exquisitely, Anne. That is a must-read chapter for clinicians. I'm going to read what you write and then see what, if there's anything else you would say. Yes, parents of medically complex children can be high maintenance. We have acquired a great amount of knowledge over the years of caring. Our ability to manage our child's complex care at home 
gives us a sense of control over an otherwise unimaginable life. The illusion we are in control. So imagine what it feels like for us to be in the ICU and not in control. This is not a controlling parent. This is a, this is a coping parent. When I was thinking about control, I mean, some people more than others like predictability in life. When you have a child with complex medical needs, there's always an underlying chaos. And so you get control by sort of getting life organized with a plan and things going according to plan. I had three other children. I had a full-time job and had a nurse that had to show up on time. And, and, and one little kink in that plan just throws you off. It's just the sense of the chaos just comes to the top. And being in a hospital, you know, I was thinking about, you know, when you're at home with a child like Jack, you're doing the care that when you're in the hospital, three people take over. The physician's making decisions, you have a nurse and you have a respiratory therapist. And all of a sudden what you're doing at home is one person has got three people, three different ideas, three different styles. I mean, there's no, there's no wonder you feel completely out of control because you, you, you've got all these different people coming in and, and then of course it's not where you want to be. I would just add that it's a universal phenomenon of uh, hospitalized patients. I was in an ICU about five years ago. Wasn't that sick, fortunately, but I felt extremely out of control, like just watching the nurse hook up the IV bag and make sure there's no air in it. And, you know, just like I felt so out of control and yet I was conscious and I was, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that sick by ICU standards, but it's a universal feeling. So anything physicians and a healthcare team can do to offer some degree of input, you know, and especially with these children where the families know them so much better than any of the providers to not listen to the family and not get their insight and input is really foolhardy. Mm, I love that. We're nearing the end of our conversation. I have a few more things. Appropriately going to end on this notion of hope, this vitally, vitally important ingredient for families, for children and their parents and their siblings. One of the pediatricians writes about aligning herself with the parents' hopes and writes, it is a strange mind space to know what is likely to happen and to simultaneously, wholeheartedly hope and strive for something different. And that sounds, we know how important that is, but it also sounds really hard. If you were to teach that, how would you teach that? What would you say? I don't know if that can be taught in a didactic way. It's more experiential. So maybe today's times are appropriate. I think I know that many more people are going to die from COVID-19. I hope in my whole heart that people see the light and they change their behavior and that we finally nip this in the, in the bud or at least change the curve. But I also know that intellectually, that's not going to happen, at least not anytime soon. But it, but it doesn't mean I can't hope for it. it. doesn't mean I can't at some level think something could change, something could come along, some events, some, you know, something. And so I think in the same vein, taking care of these children, based on my experience, I 
pretty sure I know what's going to happen, but it doesn't mean I can't hope that I'm wrong. You also wrote in one of your commentaries, even if the doctor did not believe in the child's recovery as the parents did, she, the doctor, believed in the parents. And that is what aligning can look like. That's so powerful. And that is a way to pivot. I can't quietly inside believe in what you're hoping for, but I can believe in you hoping for it. Of course, Courageous Parents Network, we are passionate advocates for pediatric palliative care. And some of the authors are licensed palliative care doctors. And then some of them just practice palliative care, even as they're not licensed palliative care doctors. Some of the parents explicitly acknowledge receiving palliative care consults and care, and some of them don't mention it at all. And one of them who's writing about a story that happened 20 years ago did not have a positive experience with palliative care, doesn't remember the encounter at all. And you actually talk about the evolution of that. As somebody who does promote the value of palliative care for families, what would you have us just think and know about the value of palliative care, particularly now in 2021? My experience with palliative care is mostly through other families. I mean, 20 years ago, when Jack was born, there wasn't palliative care that I knew of. I have a foundation and we provide respite to parents of medically fragile children. And I get a lot of my referrals from a pediatric palliative care social worker. And what I've learned is, and I've you know, had to learn this, is that your child can have a life-limiting condition, live to be 15, 12, 15, you know, 20, but they can get on palliative care in the very beginning. And, and that's just not something that I, that was an option. And again, I, Initially, I associated palliative care with hospice, and I've learned that that's not the case. Palliative care is a great resource. It provides support for the parents as well as the children, and that I've just seen nothing but positive from getting palliative care on board right away. Thank you for that. Good plug, Mom. Barry, anything else you would add to that? Yeah, I would second and third that very proud of our palliative care service here. And they provide a 360 view of comfort and support for a child in the family that the doctor, the ICU doctor, the kidney doctor, the lung doctor just can't do. They don't have the expertise. They don't have the, the mindset. And so and palliative care is usually a team, a doctor, a nurse practitioner, a social worker, et cetera. And, and they're able to provide that, that 360 view of the world and get inside, be one with the family and, and understand their hopes and dreams and their vision. So early on in the illness, following the children along the way is, I think, vital. And I can't agree more that we need to divorce ourselves. The concept of palliative care is hospice. That's a very small part of what palliative care, at least in 2021, is all about. Thank you. And you do have an awesome team at CHLA, CPN just posted a blog post by Rachel today. Rachel Roosh, the social worker, called The Language We Carry, based on what she has learned from what her patient families have said to her and the images that their stories have given her. I think that this book is a collection of memorable visual stories and images for doctors and families alike. Once you've read it, you will carry it with you always. And I think you can't help but be changed by what you read here. And I, again, recommend it really for 
anyone who wants to go into pediatrics to care for medically complex children and children living with rare conditions. Barry and Anne, thank you for this conversation, certainly, but for the extraordinary amount of work that went into collecting these stories, writing these commentaries, reflecting on all of this. I imagine, Anne, it was it was an act of love for you. You've said it, but I suspect it was also challenging sometimes to think about. I don't know. Any parting words on that? It was challenging to get back in there, but it also felt like it was a way to stay connected to Jack. As I, I explained to somebody, writing the commentaries, reading the stories was like parenting Jack as I was doing it. So I still got to parent. It really kept me connected because I felt like I was still in there in the trenches with him. In closing, Barry, I'm hoping you would please read the final paragraph on page 254 in the physician commentary. And once again, we learn the impact of these complicated children and their loving parents on a physician and how these interactions can open one's eyes, ears, minds, and hearts in truly meaningful ways. Ultimately, despite all our scientific advancements, learning medicine remains an apprenticeship. We certainly do not learn how to manage complex patients like Sarah in medical school and are barely able to absorb lessons as deep as these during training. It can take years of practice, listening, and finally learning to become the type of physician that is highlighted in this book as a true and trusted partner. I do not think it to be unintentional when we say we are quote unquote practicing medicine. Few of us ever really get it right and need to keep practicing day in and day out. When we have partners as highlighted in this book, practice can make perfect for these most complicated and vulnerable children. That's beautiful. Thank you both so, so much. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Thank you for listening. For more stories and conversations, as well as videos, downloadable guides, and decision-making resources in English and Spanish, visit CourageousParentsNetwork.org. CPN is available 24-7 for parents and providers as they strive to provide the best care for the child and the entire family.